Susan. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Morning, My name's David, and today we're um, we're still in the Jesus Is series. So a couple of weeks ago, Bruce kicked us off, and he looked at Jesus Is Life. Last week, Simon looked at the idea of Jesus being hope, and today, I guess I want to look at the idea of Jesus being thirsty, or someone who meets our thirst, our deepest needs, our longings, our desires, and to uh, to help illustrate, and just to get us off to a start. Of I want to examine a couple of cultural artefacts and trees. The first is a can of Sprite. So, who knows the motto of a can of Sprite? Image is nothing. Thirst is everything. Then what do I do? Obey my thirst. Do we know it? Let's um, let's get you a bit of background for uh, for Sprite. The uh, the advertising exec who actually came up with the campaign. Was a um, he was kind of just into political speeches, and he was looking at some of Ronald Reagan's old speeches one day. He came across something from 1971. Ronald Reagan talking to a bunch of Boy Scouts, and um, he's halfway through his thing and he got thirsty, so he took a drink, and then he said, "You know, boys, I've said a lot of things today, but uh, if there's one thing you remember, speeches are nothing. Thirst is everything." Always remember to obey your thirst. And the advertising said, that's gold. I've got to write that. I was just going to put it on a piece of paper. Three weeks later, Coca-Cola came calling and they were looking to kind of reinvigorate and reinvent Sprite. And so he pitches this idea and this is amazing for a company as big as Coke. A week later, we came up with this. Take a look. Oh, this is just one of the ads from the campaign. There's really, I think they've really tapped into something that's deep within all of us, right? That we have these thirsts, these longings. And so, you know, uh, you, you see it all the, all the time. People do uh, obey their thirst. They drink up what everyone around them calls love. They drink up what everyone uh, calls happiness. They try and find meaning and significance as defined by the media or the arts. So here's another one. Uh, if you've been on a ferry and you've been into the quay lately, you've seen on the NCA the, uh, the, the motto for the Biennale. Um, for 2014, you imagine what you desire. That's a quote from a George Bernard Shaw play, actually. You imagine what you desire. So, you know, you, you create in life based on what's in here, what's inside you. Or, um, or more locally, if you've seen the Gypsy Lady parked near Andrew Boychelton Pool, peace has a future. And where do you find it? It's within us all. You know, it's in, it's in our thirst, our desires, somewhere in there. I don't really know what they're talking about because there's another creed of our culture, another refrain that we hear. So we know that there's these things in us, right? These, these thirsts and desires that we have. But at the same time, we also know this. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try and I try and I try. That was in the 60s with, uh, with uh, Mick Jagger. In the 80s, it was um, Bono. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In the 90s, which is kind of more my era, Kurt Cobain, who died by suicide, wrote this in his note. I can't fool any of you, any one of you. The worst crime I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. And Princess Di famously said, you know, being a princess isn't all it's cracked up to be. We have these thirsts and yet we have these 
belongings, these, these, uh, this dehydration. And so that's what I want to speak about this morning. You might not have realised it actually, but the Bible is drenched in water. In Genesis 1, before any matter comes into existence, God is hovering over the waters by his spirit. And of the six verses that describe Eden um, in Genesis 2, four are dedicated to talking about the shimmering rivers that crisscross the garden. Then when you fast forward to Revelation at the end of the Bible, all the waters of Eden have been restored. And so we read this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And so between the beginning and the end, Genesis to Revelation, water becomes this powerful symbol of not only purification and renewal, but, but of God's presence and his provision. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, God says in Isaiah, and streams upon the, the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. And so thirst actually becomes emblematic of our great need for God himself. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, says the psalmist. But not everyone's as clear-minded as the psalmist in the scriptures about the source of their thirst. And so we meet again and again in the Bible these humans who are very familiar, actually, to people like us, who, who seem so, uh, I guess, familiar in their attempts to quench their longings with everything but God's living water. And we, we met one today in the passage that Susan read for us in John's Gospel, and so that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Uh, and although we're only given a few key details, it's not hard to imagine her backstory. So, point one, the problem with obeying your thirst. Now, the problem with obeying your thirst is that it leads you down an enslaving path, actually, to idolatry. So imagine it's midday in the high rocky desert region of Samaria. The, the landscape shimmering with heat under the burning sun and Jesus and his disciples, they're weary and thirsty from a day's walk. They stop outside the city limits and they sit down by a well. Jesus sits in, in the heat and the disciples go into town to buy food. Now this well is one that we've met before in the Bible. It was made famous by his ancestor Jacob and this is not an incidental detail in the story that wells are actually really important places in the Bible. When people gather at a well, something's about to happen. So, I mean, let's think of a couple of famous well stories. Um, it was at a well where Isaac first kind of meets his wife, Rebecca, or his servant. So his servant watches and um, the, the girl that is waters the camels, that's the one that's going to be Isaac's wife. Or Moses, he meets his wife, Zipporah, at a well, only this time Moses waters her camels. And it's at this well where Jesus sits that Jacob first laid eyes on his beloved Rachel and he wept aloud for the sheer love of her. Very poetic language. And so in each of these stories, when characters gather at a well, a thirst is quenched. And that thirst is for relationship, it's for authentic love, it's for connection. You could, you could almost say the well itself is a symbol of deep emotional thirst. And so here we are at a well. It's a boy meets girl scene. We're all set up. The pals, they've gone into town to buy food. Jesus is there. And a lone woman comes out at midday. Jacob's well. Now before we get into the saucy bit of the story, I just want to tell you a little bit about Jacob. Um, Jacob, who kind of got this well happening, his name means liar 
actually. And in the Bible he wears his name well. He, he has a hairy older brother called Esau and a helicopter mum. And um, he lies and cheats and steals. And eventually his big Chewbacca brother says, I'm just going to kill you. And so he, he's got to flee, run away. And he gets a job working for a distant relative and he falls in love with his daughter, uh, Rachel. Immediately love struck. It's some of the most romantic language in the Bible because Dad says to him, you've got to work for seven years to earn my daughter's hand in marriage. And the years felt as days because of his intense love for her. Sounds good, right? Very poetic, very romantic. But according to one Old Testament scholar, it's actually really cheap, coarse, tacky language that that they're using in that part of the Bible because it's not actually romanticising Jacob's decision. It's criticising it. Yeah, in the Bible... And back in those days, you didn't marry because of your kind of emotional um, kind of needs like we do in the Western world. You didn't marry like that. And so the Bible's kind of saying, Jacob's not acting like a lover. He's acting like an addict. And what's his drug of choice? It's Rachel. So in other words, despite the poetry, Jacob's not in love with Rachel. He's in love with how Rachel makes him feel. It's two very different things. There are seven years come to an end and there's a marriage. And in the night time, Dad brings the older sister Leah to the marriage bed and he sleeps with Leah and when the morning comes, oh, there's Leah. He's been tricked into marrying Rachel's sister Leah. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy accidentally marries sister. It's like classic romantic comedy, right? Leah gets the worst of the deal but she's kind of a hero because Genesis is making the point here and God makes the point again and again and again in the Bible. This is what life is going to be like now that you've left the garden. This is what life's going to be like. You can't find in someone or something what you are meant to find in God. You're not going to find this in the love of your life, the one. You can't find in someone or something else what you're meant to find in God. You know, Stanley Halvas, who's an um, ethics professor at Duke University in the States, says this, we always marry the wrong person. We never know who we marry, we just think we do. Or even, if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. Yeah, you know it. For marriage being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we've entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. In other words, he's telling us something the Bible's been telling us for years, thousands of years. But every romantic comedy fails to mention this. In the morning... It's always Leah. In the morning, it's always Leah, right? You can't find in someone or something else what you're meant to find in God. And so for Jacob, he was, he was a love addict. Anyway, that's background because we're going to meet another love addict at the same well. It's a place of unexpected encounters, a symbol of deep emotional thirst, a boy meets girl scene, Jesus is alone and out from the town comes a woman. Midday, very hot. It's strange. It's the first thing we need to notice about this woman because most of the women, apparently, we understand, would go and do the water thing early in the morning or late at night in the cool of the day. It was a very social time. So they shared the load, the physical load, and they also shared their friendship and that kind of thing. But this woman's not with the other women. She's uh, a loner. We need to ask the question, what's, what's going on? And there's some clues in the text. She's had a bunch of husbands. Maybe some of the women who are part of the bigger group have had their marriages wrecked by this woman. In any case, she's arranged her life to have as little human contact as possible. And so even this trip to get water is carefully timed 
So no one in their right mind goes in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day in the desert, to get water. It's shame. I, I don't know if you've ever considered shame very much, because to, to be ashamed is to expect rejection, not because of what you've done, but it's because of who you are. Okay? So when you're guilty, there's a solution. You can say sorry or you can make amends, you can repay. But when you're ashamed, well, well how do you fix that? It's actually really suffocating. You, you, can't, it's, you can't not be fat. You can't not be stupid. You can't not have failed. You can't not be ugly. It's suffocating. Um, you think about uh, a man in his 50s who's down on, on the wharf and he's staring at a university-age girl and uh, he notices that she notices, but he keeps staring. And then, then it, like, this thing, like a hot coal, just flashes through his mind. It's, it's shame, right? And he gets a bit startled, so he buries himself in his paper. And when the ferry comes, she goes up and he makes sure he stays down. For the rest of the day, he kind of feels crap. You know what that... You know what that that idea that scorched him, it was an image of himself as an unhappy 50-year-old kind of loner loser staring at a girl who couldn't possibly be interested in him. And that's a shame, that image evokes, is too hot to handle. Or, or think of a young woman, she's having, she's got, having friends over, 10 she's invited, but only six come. And the poor, it, she's humiliated, actually. The, the six who come, she's, she's shamed in front of them. She thinks they're going to think I'm, I'm disregarded, I'm unpopular. She doesn't know three of them very well. They're from work. They're not mixing with her other friends. She thinks, I'm such an idiot. Um, I'm trying to reach out to them. And for a moment, Shane panics her. She starts to speak too much. She wants to explain, make excuses for the food, for the decor. Oh, it's not. It's just temporary. She just thinks, oh, I just wish it would end. And when they go, she thinks, oh, they all think I'm an idiot. What does shame require? You can't apologise. You can't make amends for shame. You know, the only thing that works for you when you're ashamed is just to disappear, to not exist. That, you know, that's why we say, oh, I just could have died. You said that? Or I just wished that the floor would have opened up and swallowed me up. That's the only thing that works for shame. And, you know, I think historically in the West we've been better at guilt than shame. So, you know, we've been a nation of laws and kind of a strict moral code and when you violate laws you're guilty. But I think we're moving actually, so I'm part of a generation that doesn't agree that there's a fixed moral code. So I think the people that I'm friends with don't feel guilt with the same sharpness that we feel shame. Do you know what I mean? We still do things that are wrong and we still know they're wrong. And in particular, we do things that are wrong with our bodies. So we're awash in a sea of sex and sensuality and so, you know, pornography, um, premarital sex, promiscuity, abortion homosexuality, sexual abuse, eating disorders, it's all kind of body stuff. It's all tied up with shame. But, but I think because of that transition from a guilt culture to shame culture, we experience shame more, but we don't know what to do with it just yet. And I think as Christians, we kind of know more what to do with guilt at the moment. It's not because the, the gospel doesn't say anything about shame, it does. But I think, um, I think we just haven't done that well. And so I think maybe to many people, the gospel hasn't sounded as sweet as it really is. In any case, this woman, she's trying to isolate herself. She uh, doesn't want to be around people. And her isolation strategies have worked up to this point until she finds a parched traveller sitting at Jacob's well. And um, 
all the cultural clues tell her this guy's a Jew. She thinks, well, that's good, there's probably no chance of an interaction. Um, but in any case, she keeps her head down and dips the bucket and does her thing. Then he says, will you give me a drink? She's thinking, what? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? I mean, the thought of a Jew and a Samaritan sharing a water cup, that was one thing, but apparently Jewish men went out of their way to make a show of avoiding women, of, like of any race. Um, so it's a big deal. And uh, the man says, you know, if you knew the gift of God and the one who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He says, just, you know, just like he's describing the weather. It's hard to describe what's stranger actually, the fact that he said something about living water or the fact that he's talking to a woman in this boy meets girl scene without any hint of lust or desire in his voice. And normally she can tell pretty quickly what men are thinking, but this guy's an enigma. And she says, sir, uh, you've got nothing to draw with and the water is deep. How are you going to get this living water? He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She's thinking, this guy's crazy, right? Delusional. Could be homeless. <laughs> she should just say, um, okay, I'm going back now. Have fun at the well. But she doesn't. There's something going on between them. So she plays along a bit, bit longer. So she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to get water. Now, she doesn't realise it, but Jesus' words actually remind us of something that was said in Jeremiah chapter 2. God says this, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Do I want to say this morning, we are longing beings. We are spiritual beings. We're worshipping beings. We're thirsty beings. Thirst is God's idea. God created us for a relationship with him, to walk with him in the cool of the day, right? As the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants for you, O God. So the, the thirst isn't simple. It's the relational direction that we send it. That's, that's where we can kind of make a mistake. And this Samaritan woman, she's been looking for something or someone else to quench her thirst. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in mere Christianity. Most people, if they've really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or think of some foreign country, are longings that no marriage, no travel can satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. They were a good wife. The holiday and the scenery were excellent. But something's evaded us. You know, it's become cliche to hear about men leaving their wives for younger women. We hear it all the time. We've become numb to it. These are not bad men, they're not bad women, they're just being consistent, right? That's what we say, obey your thirst. Yeah, that's the most destructive thing about idolising love like this. It actually crushes the person that you're uh, supposed to be loving. Yeah, your husband or wife or, or 
friend or partner, they can't fulfil what was meant to be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. And so we end up so bitter sometimes when, when we disappoint each other, particularly in marriage. Because they haven't just hurt us in the moment, they've hurt us deeply and profoundly because we're looking for something in them that they were never meant to give us. Remember Stanley Halber? We always marry the wrong person. In the morning it's always Leah. So this woman, she goes from man to man to find the one who's finally going to fill her emptiness. And it hasn't worked until one day she meets this man who not only completely understands her thirst, but he wants to, to quench it. Now, in Jeremiah's day, the uh, assistant trapped runoff street water in a clay kind of repository and uh, lay in there stagnant. And sometimes it got so hot the clay cracked and, um, and then you'd really be parched because there'd be nothing left. Your other option in Jeremiah's day is to drink from clear, cool, fresh, pure, bubbling spring water flowing, thirst-quenching water from deep inside the earth, water that never runs dry. And sin and idolatry, which what that is, is a fancy word that just means legitimate needs, right, met in an illegitimate way. Legitimate needs, thirst and longings met in an illegitimate way. Sin and idolatry. That's just our choice to drink from stagnant yuck water instead of from spring water. It's our false belief that we can fix God's shape and God-sized first with human-shaped and human-sized alternatives. A legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. It's false worship, it's false hope. So people who are trying to quench their spiritual thirst for Jesus in sexual or romantic encounters will find that quite futile. She doesn't get it at this stage. She says, Sir, I want some of that living water so that I don't have to keep coming back to the well. He smiles at her, not unkindly, but he smiles. He says, go get your husband and come back. Jesus has been talking about thirsts and now he's talking about systems. He's been talking about God-created longings, water, thirsts, and now he's talking about godless choices about longings. Go call your husband and come back. The muscles in her stomach tighten. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. She's looking around like, has someone from town come out and briefed this guy? Like, he's, he's dogged. There's no one around. And so she starts to think, maybe this guy's a prophet. And so she asks him a question about Samaritan theology and as he answers, something strange starts to happen inside her, like a softening. And at once there's, there's like hope bubbling up inside and before she even knows what she's saying she blurts out well I know the Messiah's coming and when he comes he'll explain everything okay this man's really smiling now he's looking directly at her eyes he says I the one I'm speaking am he it's a boy meets girl scene the romantic well scene but she doesn't just meet another man. You know, she meets the great husband of the church itself. You know why Jesus is different to the five men that she'd been with and why he's so different to me in my marriage? Because he's the one I'm to look to as a husband. Let me read to you what it says about Jesus in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. That's a famous passage, but that points us to the great husband that this woman meets at the well. The husband who understands her thirst and is able to quench her thirst because he lays down his life for her thirst. You know, when this woman met Jesus at the well, she met a thirsty person, dehydrated from the midday scorching heat. But when we meet Jesus on the cross, we meet a Jesus dehydrated spiritually because of the undiluted wrath of God. You know, as Jesus hung there, the scripture says, in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. And the Roman soldiers, like the Samaritan woman who were around, thought, well, that's fair. She's been crucified. So they got a sponge and they dipped it in wine vinegar and they put it on a stick and they raised it to his lips. That's not what Jesus meant. The psalmist says this, I'm poured out like water, talking about Jesus that day. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. When Jesus hangs there and says, I thirst, he says, I'm thirsty for you because I know that you thirst. This is my life for your life. I will take your shame and I will take your thirst and it will end with me. And in his death we get the cool water of the favour of God. He was laid in the dust of the earth so that we could have our thirst satisfied. Jesus is the only one who will satisfy you when you find him. All other gods, all other idols will enslave you. And in the midst of our barren, desert, spiritual thirst, we hear the words of Jesus to this thirsty woman. If you knew the gift of God, you'd ask him for a drink of living water and your thirst would be satisfied. This is the gift of our God. We need to ask him for a drink of his living water. How do we do it? Well, one of the ways is we just confess the ways that we've tried to quench our own thirst. So so the wells that we've tried to dig ourselves, that we're drinking from, that only make us thirstier. Because unless we see where we're drinking now, we'll never find the living water. Now, Jesus' invitation to the woman is this. Go get your husband and come back to me. Go get your husband. He can't fulfil you. I fulfil you. Go get him. Bring him back to me. And by the way, you can't fulfil him. You both need to be here. That's his invitation to us. Go get it, whatever it is for you, and bring it to Jesus. Because it can't give you what Jesus can give you. You know what happens to this woman? Three amazing things happen to this woman. He alone becomes the compelling vision of her life. She gets her priorities straight. So this little kind of note in the text. She rushes off into town to tell everyone and get her husband and she leaves her water pot behind. Having tasted the living water, 
she's, she's just abandoned her old inadequate ways of trying to quench her thirst. You know, we all have water pots, ways of trying to fill ourselves. For some of us it's food. For some of us it's sex, pornography. For some of us it's alcohol and drugs. For some of us it's, it's work. And do you know what's scary? For some of us it's ministry. It's church stuff or homemaking or relationships. Now, most of us haven't gone through five husbands, but we have gone through five jobs, five moves, five weight loss programs, five churches, and still the insatiable thirst continues because we'll never find what we're looking for if we just pick it up along the way. Not even important stuff like relationships. All of these things will leave us empty if we force them to try and satisfy our thirst. You know, towards the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, Jesus makes clear to every thirsty person what he makes clear to that woman. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and I'm the end. And he makes this promise. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. And you know, only that water will do for us. For this woman, her repentance is liberating. It's the other wonderful thing that happens to her. It's not crushing. It doesn't crush her that she's been looking in all the wrong places. It's, it frees her. You know what the first thing he does? He runs to town, she runs to town and she tells all her friends, this guy told me everything I ever did. There's no longer any shame for this woman. We meet her in isolation. I wish I could just die and the world would swallow me up. And now she goes back and says, he's just laid me open and he's loved me and he's watered me and he's quenched me. There's no shame anymore. It's actually really, really beautiful. And she boldly shares him with others. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. You know, image is nothing. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. Our thirsts are given to us by God. And you need, you need to let your thirst lead you to Jesus, to the true living water. Jesus is the thirsty Messiah, the one who is thirsty for you. He alone gives you absolute refreshment, complete satisfaction. And this morning I want to make an invitation that God himself makes to come and drink because there is no other stream. Isaiah 55 says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, Come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what's not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me. This is the invitation and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest fare. Give ear and come to me and listen that you may live. I'm going to pray a prayer for us all. I want to pray for you. 
And if you want to come to Jesus today, I'd like to invite you just to pray with me, to, to, to own for yourself my words. But before I pray, I want to be very, very, very clear about what I'm not saying this morning. Because as I've talked and as, as we've read the Bible and seen Jesus in the Scriptures, if you've diagnosed your problem as, oh yes, I've been giving myself to work in an idolatrous way, or, oh yes, I've, I've been giving myself to my marriage in an idolatrous way, then what I could have done, I might have convinced you that that's foolish this morning. I might have convinced you even that that's blasphemous. But it's possible that you're not yet ready to receive the living water that Jesus offers. I'll tell you why. Because we're not talking about God as another taker. Okay? He's not more demanding than your career. He's not more demanding than your marriage. Because sometimes I think if we define the problem as, oh, I've been offering myself to the wrong thing and what I need to do, if that's, if that's the problem, then the solution is I need to offer myself to the right thing. I just need to offer myself to God. That's not good news. That's not the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? It's not that you have to offer yourself to God and work and dig a well. It's that God offered himself for us. When Jesus said, I'm thirsty, he was thirsty for us. It's not about getting busy and, oh, I better start a ministry. It's about coming to Jesus as the one who who is the giver of living water. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Don't just start digging in a different place. Face your thirst and stop giving. Stop digging this morning. Let me pray. Father, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman, he said, if only she knew who she was talking to, he would have asked, him for living water and that water would have welled up in her to eternal life this morning we've seen Jesus in the scripture we've seen that Jesus doesn't take, take, take but he gives, gives, gives and he gave his life for us, he was thirsty so that we didn't have to thirst after anything that's empty or dehydrating anymore Father this morning we come to Jesus as the source of living water that we may live. Amen.